Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday. I'm Ken Rimple. Hey, I'm Sue John. You guys probably know me by now. I'm a regular at this point. <laughs> you are. You are a regular and you are also a host. So uh, Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. Uh, we have a, a news show again today. So let me grab my screen here and we'll go through kind of the news items we pick for the week um, and uh, do that. I just realized I did that wrong. Okay, share screen, and there we go. Okay, so first of all, let's remind everybody that uh, we are Chariot Solutions, uh, chariotsolutions.com, and uh, that's our website, consulting firm. We do a lot of different software, and uh, if you check our, our website, you can go to our blog, for example, and see things that we write about. Um, the most recent thing on chariotsolutions.com slash blog is we have a, a, an article from Tracy Wilson-Rossman uh, on the Internet of Things, just some uh, notes on some things to be uh, mindful of when you're designing uh, for an IoT, uh, an industrial Internet of Things applications. So it's kind of like five things to keep in mind. I know Don Coleman and I were discussing the testing plan part of that a little bit. Uh, so that's an article you can check out. Um, in terms of events, we have three events we want to make sure you know about. So the first one is that we have a uh, executive town hall series event. Uh, this is called uh, Leadership Strategies to Drive Innovation, Growth, and Resiliency. Uh, Tracy is talking to Gita Schmidt, uh, CEO at Humio. Uh, and that is happening on March 10th at 11 a.m. It's free. So you can check that out and find out what they're talking about here. Um, so this is, uh, you know, being agile and innovative, uh, with a virtual town hall discussing leadership tactics and changes in technology space that are driving innovation and growth. So you can check that out on our events page under resources. The other thing is one that I'm doing with Aaron Mulder. Um, uh, we are running 30 years of Linux and open source software. It's uh, another one kind of like we did with the Java event uh, last year. Uh, turns out that Linux is 30 years old. Sujan, can you believe that it's 30? I know. Python, by the way, is also 30 years old. Oh, they came out the same year? That's kind of cool. Most ever around the, around the same time. And what's funny is Monty Python was old even then, so, <laughs> which is what they named Python after, Monty Python. Um, so yeah, cool. And, and also, I remember doing uh, a one of my Micro Center machines 30 years ago. I remember putting it together. It's a tower machine. I'm doing the, the diskettes, the format to do Linux with Slackware probably at the time. And uh, LBA addressing and all sorts of hardware stuff. So I can't believe it's come that far you since the, then. You know what the size of the kernel was on average back then? Oh, it must have been like 4K or something crazy like that. It must have been really tiny, you know? But uh, it had to fit on a floppy, I know that. Yep. So anyway, so that's that. Uh, Aaron and I are going to talk about what Chariot's done 30, for the last uh, tw almost 20 years, I guess now, or 20 years. And then we are talking to Nithia Ruff. She's at Comcast as their executive director of open source. She's also the Linux Foundation Board of Directors member, the chair actually of them. So it'll be interesting to hear like how the Linux Foundation is shepherding Linux into the future. So that's coming up on, yeah, on March 18th. Again, a free event, 315 to 5. So if you're looking to kind of round out your workday and learn a little bit about the history of Linux and also about where it's going. Our um, careers would be probably impossible or extremely challenging at the least without open source software. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Let's just think today I was doing Docker to build a an image for a Lambda because the Lambda needed a native Python build. So I spun up an Ubuntu image, 
and I built it natively in that. And before I would have to physically set up a whole VM and everything. It's just like I don't know. It's in a Docker container. Like the end, the end credit reel for a movie. You like write software and then release and you have like credits reel. And it would be like endless, a number of actual software authors involved. Absolutely. There's so many. And, you know, Linux is that uh, type of software where there's lots of tiny packages. And it's amazing. It's held up for 30 years, like the kernel, especially. It's gotten more stable. It's gotten, you know, more powerful, connects to all sorts of different hardware. Um, and it's been lots of tiny patches and changes over 30 years. It just shows a, a really well-run open source project can even have a very... Um, fine grain level of commits and changes to it and be successful. So very cool. Uh, and it still beats the heck out of running Windows uh, comparatively to me. All right, so that's coming up again. That's at our events uh, page. We'll have that up there uh, on our links on the YouTube channel and on our post. Um, then in addition to that, we have da -da 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 -da, Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. Uh, that is coming up on May 4th to 6th. Sue John, are you ready for this one? I can't wait. I, I can't. Yeah. Say enough about this. I'm obviously biased, but it's been a concept that we've been going to for many years, running for many years along with the Philadelphia community. It sells out every year. Fantastic lineup every year. Um, I think one of the unique things about this conference is it's not trying to sell a platform or a piece of software or an, or tied to any vendor. Um, it is really for the community, by the community, and I, I truly mean that. Um, the talks are all about what do developers in our community, what would they be interested in and what is on the cutting edge and like getting folks that write books that are the actual committers of open source packages. Um, I would say we've definitely expanded the list of topics over the years, so it's even broader than it was before. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, I think by attending, you're not only getting a lot of great content, but you're supporting the community in the tech community in Philadelphia and, and the stuff that's going on. So um, please check it out. I wish we had like a, I wish I was like that slap chop guy and had like a 30 second infomercial for each. Bam! <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's really great. So bam, Alan Kay, one of our feature keynotes. Uh, <laughs> amazing uh, individual. He's a pioneer in computing science. He was one of the people that, uh, in fact, he was the pioneer of the graphical user interface. Uh, you know, that that's the stuff that the Apple team stole from Xerox Park. So um, object-oriented programming innovator. Uh, he's amazing. He had the Turing Award in 2003. Uh, he's one of our speakers. He's a keynoter. And I just love that. We are starting to get more of our uh, speakers uh, with actual abstracts, which is great. Um, so now you'll see we've got, the, you know, some agile talks. Uh, I didn't mean to jump to one, um, you know, uh, refactoring code, um, you know, dealing with like organizational structure, Richard Feldman program with novel boundaries. Um, you know, Kent Beck is going to talk and he's an ex the author of extreme programming uh, founder, one of the founders of that movement. Uh, and just amazing that we'll have him coming. Jessica Kerr is always an awesome speaker for us and she's on the board now which is great. Um, so here's one, Matthew Plord, senior data scientist at Monotate, local company uh, using uh, open data sources. Uh, you know, lots of good stuff. And that'll keep updating over time. Uh, we're still zeroing in on a couple more speakers. So we're going to be somewhere around 30, which is great. Uh, and we're splitting it up 
uh, less than a full day each day for three days as opposed to two really dense days. Awesome. I think it gives, yeah, it gives people more time to chat with each other and meet. We're, you know, researching things we could, you know, get together and chat about in the mornings, I think, if they're going to do them later in the day. So it's going to be an interesting time, definitely interesting time. So that's at phillyemergingtech.com, which you'll notice the site is 2021. Dot. And for fun, if you want to hit 2020, you can see what we did last year in 2019. Or if you want to watch all of them, you can go to github.com, YouTube. Sorry, nope. Try that again. YouTube.com. Wow. Oh, boy. Where is that coffee? YouTube.com slash Chariot Solutions. And you can look at our playlists. We have an entire playlist uh, called the Philly ETE Super Playlist where you can go back in time and look at all of our talks. There is some amazing stuff in there. So please register. I know the early bird is over, but it's still, I think, $85 or $89. I forget the number. Very reasonable. Very reasonable. Okay. So let's get into the news now. Uh, let's see here. Attorney General James, Letitia James, in New York, ends virtual currency trading platform Bitfinex's illegal activities in New York. So there's some interesting stuff going on with, with all these different... Uh, virtual currencies with Bitcoin and Dogecoin and all these other things. Um, you know, recently we've had this huge spike in Bitcoin where it's gone up and up and up and up and up. Um, so let's see here. Uh, this is a, according to the ag.ny.gov. So it's the official attorney general site. Um, Today, continued efforts to protect investors from fraudulent and deceptive virtual cryptocurrency trading platforms are requiring Bitfinex and Tether, which is another one, to end all trading activity with New Yorkers. So there's a wider movement, right, um, in the in government in general against uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't follow it religiously. Right. It, it, disclaimer: I don't own any myself, so it's something that I'm still fearful of or skeptical. Of, maybe is a better word uh, because it's just highly volatile and sensitive to all sorts of things that are going on, and there's like competing currencies and. You know, it's been taking a major hit this week because Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and uh, Yellen, United States Treasury Secretary, um, have been basically railing against it. So it's been going down. So, you know, it's just concerned me, like, what, what's the future for it? How is it going to look after everyone's had their say in it and governments have had their say? So, Yeah. And, you know, my son, uh, my older son is 23 and uh, Mr. Drew, and he, he actually has some, I think it's Bitcoin that he bought. And then he held it for a couple of weeks and sold it for like a, 100% markup, you know, he did pretty well with it, but he made like $170. I'm like, well, but then it's a short-term capital gain, I guess. I don't know if it even shows up in your taxes. I have no idea how that works. That's the stuff that scares me. But, you know, I'm an old head here, right? So I have no idea. Um, but I do know one thing. So apparently they're, they're talking, just quick quick note here, that uh, that they found that Bit iFinex, the operator Bitfinex, and Tether made false statements about the backing of the Tether stablecoin about the movement of hundreds of millions of dollars between the two companies to cover up the truth about massive losses. So I would just say that you have to be very careful when you get involved in things like this, um, that you're not putting money into something that has a lot of shaky ground. Um, yeah. and none of the advice was, or any, none, none of what we're saying is advice. So please don't. Not at all. Yeah, we are not investing people. So we are not conveying advice. Good point. However, I do know that someone, <laughs> so Bitcoin and all these the blockchain-based currencies, they they mine coins. You know, it's the, they they go through these prime uh, math algorithms to get a unique 
a prime number that gets accepted by the currency to, to mint a new coin. And early, early on, people were really doing this at, with lots of computers and making some money on this um, when it didn't cost that much electricity to mine a coin. But apparently, and this is an article from uh, Christian Hashtag, uh, How I Heat My Home by Mining Cryptocurrencies and Cut My Electricity Bill in Half in the Process. It's kind of scary that like it takes that much power to just mint one coin. It might cost more to mint the coin than it does to actually create the coin at some point. I hope he has like backup uh, graphics cards and, and and computers and software, like whatever. Just so like if if he's really using this to heat his home and all of a sudden that goes, he needs to uh -huh. like, turn on another failover. <laughs> I wonder when the meltdown happens and he reaches the core. <laughs> So yeah, so uh, he he has an interesting project. He seems like a really cool engineer. Um, after building my own smart home meter and using four dollars in parts, I started checking my electricity usage every day. Um, especially since all heat and warm water in my low energy house is made with electricity. He has solar panels on his roof, so he has cool stuff in here. But you know, he talked about things like you know, you could like preheat the incoming air as it comes in. He's really a serious engineer here. Here's a cryptocurrency miner. I think he started by putting it in the same room and you know the kind of air draws it in and warms the house sure. in that room. Um, you know, then he said, like, what's the cost? So, like, wow. I'm not gonna be able to digest this well, but he is claiming here he had his electricity price, the consumption, and the hash rate of the cards. And he said he actually could make 12 bucks in profit a day. I think that's a sliding scale over time as these things get more complex to build, you know, because because as you get more complex uh, calculations, it's probably going to step by this and this right. won't be viable anymore. And, uh, you said that he has solar power or a majority of his electricity is generated by solar. Yep. Yep. On I, wonder, I wonder if he has a break even point on how much he spent on the solar panels. <laughs> Yeah, and that's another thing, like, too. I know that, you know, down the road, we're thinking our roof is going to need replacement soon. It would be nice to invest in a solar panel roof, um, but you're really just de delaying when you actually break even by 10 years, probably right now with the cost. But, you know, I think we're heading more in this direction with the new government. I think we'll we'll see, not in this direction, but in the direction of renewable energy, and we might see it in our houses. But he's saying, he says, at the time... He was doing this work. He was making $3.8 of profit a day with the miner. And he was heating, apparently. Recycling yeah. heat of the miner to warm a house. Starbucks every day. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's all the things he did. So option one was lazy heating from within the house. Option two is running the miner outside the house and funneling in the heat. Right. So he's able to lower his heat pumps electricity needs by a 50%. And half the costs are also paid about for by the mining earnings. How does he control the temperature? Does he just decide to, like, if it gets too hot, he'll vent it elsewhere? Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, don't know. I haven't read it all the way through, to be honest. Um, I'm only running the miner when it's cold outside and the price is high enough. Huh. Okay. So he's looking at electricity prices, I guess, too. Well, he's going to actually cool the machines. Interesting. Nice. So running the cold air through the machines and take the warm air and feed into the heat pump. Oh, cool. Nice. I got to get out more. Do you, uh, are all this talk about Bitcoin and, you know, Dogecoin, et cetera. Have you ever, 
You ever seen The Witcher? I have not. Oh, okay. Then What's you, the deal with that? There's a song in there, Toss a Coin to Your Witcher. It's very popular. Oh, uh, it always makes me think of that anyway, if you haven't seen it. It's, you, should, you should check it out. I think you'll, it took me to, I'm digressing here, but I had to watch the whole first season, which I think is the only thing available right now, twice to actually, and discuss it with like Witcher aficionados that have read the books and played the video games, or which mm -hmm. co-workers at Cherry are, to actually fully understand it. Is it based on a video game? It is actually, so it's a, it is based on a Polish book. Okay. It came out, the author's Polish. It was written in Polish and I guess translated in English. And then that oh. turned into a video game or the other way. No, I think that's, that's the order of events. And then that all turned into a, uh, a movie. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Looking for my next series to start uh, digesting. Now he says here, how long will the miners stay profitable? My mining rig will stay profitable to the, the ether, I guess, whatever that coin price is at roughly $900. Um, so if the coin price lowers, it won't match. So that's the whole thing we're talking about. Like how much does the coin trade at? And if you hit a certain amount of trading, uh, you know, price, then it's worth him mining coins. If not, it's not worth it. So that's his uh, calculation. But again, as these calculations get more complex, it's probably going to take a lot more processing power to mine a coin. So this might work now. And in five years, it might not even be worth turning it on. I, I just texted Ether is at uh, $1,545 right now. So he's doing fine now. Oh, wait, until it's at. Yeah, yeah so no, he's, he's fine below that. So in other words, if he can mine one and make that much, then he's doing fine. Right, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Your mileage may vary. We're not investment advisors. Um, this is one I found. Alma Ramirez, she only has one article right now on Medium. Um, but it's an interesting one. So she has uh, how Amazon tests their website, a discussion with Jaden Yang. So this interview uh, is an Amazon uh, lead software engineer. Uh, his name is Jaden Yang. Uh, and she wanted to ask them about how they test uh, the Amazon website. So before this, uh, you know, it's a good read. And he started at Google. Um, and they talk about the fact that, you know, testing uh, Amazon, you have to be able to run about just about any device that can run the Amazon website. So I guess first things first is to kind of take this in context, right? Uh, and Susan and I were talking about this earlier. Mm -hmm. Is you know their website is kind of basic, um, not an, not an offense to Amazon, but it's a basic website that runs on everything. It has a different need than let's say a React-based front end that has all sorts of snazzy features that only modern browsers would use. So they still have users on Internet Explorer, for example, and a lot of users on Safari. Um, and so they have to test everything on everything. Yeah. I think that with the the large user base, every device and, and platform they have to support, and probably the number of features that are constantly coming out for Amazon, you need to be able to spread your test and burden, test, testing burden and make it really easy to test new features. And probably they mentioned something interesting here. Like I like how they evaluate tools, right? You look at like flexibility, ease of use, ROI, you know, mm -hmm. PSD stuff. So that's a very healthy way of looking at it and evaluating things. But their ROI may be different than other companies. Have, you know, ton of employees that are probably looking at ROI on uh, ease of use for interns, junior developers, distributed teams, things like that. So interesting, I think it may work for them um, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like they mentioned, they would never use Cypress 
Yeah, we I know we use Cypress and and you know it's we had done other testing frameworks in the past and found Cypress to be very productive. Um, but we do a lot of single page apps. So it may just be a good niche for our tester uh team that that it makes more sense for that to be used. It's certainly better than uh using Selenium, for example, for us. I know that. Yeah. Um, the, the uh the tool they mentioned, I think you said it end test. It, yeah, end test, which is commercial, I believe. It does do so you're basically like building um, tests using like sentences, right? Essentially you're saying, hey, like go to this page, mm -hmm. action, expect this result. So you're able to write it at a higher level than writing code. Um, apparently you can script things. But what I find interesting that I'd want to take a look at more is a, it, it can record mobile tests. I could see that being yeah. pretty, pretty useful. So I kind of want to talk to Steve Smith, um, what his thoughts are, whether any of our, you know, projects have used it, used this from that angle or not. Yeah, it's always fun to read these blogs and find out tools that, may, you know, places like Amazon are using. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's good from that perspective too. So, you know, they they didn't they didn't uh, do any of the open source testing library tools. They ended up with NTest. Um, and then there was some note that she asked a question, why many, so, so many teams are writing their own testing frameworks. Um, I'm not so sure this is a, is a truism, but um, I know that that people started that way because there just wasn't a lot of tooling. Yeah, you know, uh, we've done it before, <clears throat> not for end-to-end -end browser based <laughs> testing. I've never tried to reinvent that wheel. Wow. Yeah, that's harder. Yeah, we have built our own small utilities. I don't know if I'd call them frameworks. Utilities for API testing. Mm -hmm. um, that was just more custom um, for the domain we were working on than like Postman or 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 um, SOAP UI. Mm -hmm. So PR is a lot better now than it used to be, actually. I, I, I shouldn't have reacted that way. <laughs> That's fine. I, I, I'm just thinking to myself, like, I know she may be referring to people like Google. So people like, there's a person named Google out there. It's got yeah. a Google of feet. Cool um, dude. Cool dude. Yeah, he's got, ooh. Um, many oohs. But the thing about the, <laughs> the Google one is when the AngularJS team was first working on AngularJS, they wrote their own end-to-end -end testing framework. Uh, I forget what it was called, but Protractor was created because of that. So for example, they went from one, they completely did their own. And then they looked and said, we're writing a testing framework and we're a front end single page app development team. We don't have time to do this and we can't cover every corner case. So what they ended up doing was Protractor was like a DSL on top of Selenium. And now that didn't even do well for a lot of people. So they kind of got out of that game, yeah. you know? So uh, it's, and there's a bunch of other testing frameworks out there now that do that, but that's like probably an example of one that, that exists. My, my one concern with stuff like this or, or articles like this is invest in your QA engineers more than your tools. Train oh, your yeah. people, invest in them. A, a, a great QA person, which we have one, is worth their weight in gold. So invest in their career and, and, and their ability to analyze problems. And then yes, and listen to them. If they tell you a tool sucks, or this tool is easier for them to use. They're the ones using it every day. So, yeah. like, you know, don't take your engineer hat off for a second. And instead of like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't, you know, they do know what they're talking about because they're the ones using it every day. So listen to them and invest in them. And it's software development, a testing code development. And for, in the case of like a Cypress, there's a build tool for it. You know, you run through it and it's got JavaScript and you're writing JavaScript code. So, you know. You evaluate the framework and make sure it makes sense for your organization and for your team members, like you said, your tester. Um, and we're able to run that lights out, for example, you know, so 
run it in CI environments. So there's, uh, yeah, different tools will fit for different groups. And, and right, the tester is more important than the tool. That's absolutely, I think that's absolutely true. Um, okay, so that's an interesting article. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, here's another one. So we've had Scott Hanselman come to speak at uh, Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. I'm going to call it 2016, 2015, I forget. He was a keynote speaker. He's a very well-known Microsoft uh, employee, really, really interesting person. He has a blog post he put up there a while back. Um, Free Windows 10 development virtual machines for Hyper-V, Parallels, VirtualBox, and VMware. So actually, it wasn't a while ago. It was February 18th, about a week. Um, so it turns out it's not just Windows 10 VMs, but it's Windows 10 VMs with Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code. Um, it's got the Windows 10 SDK on it. Windows subsystem for Linux is enabled and Ubuntu is installed in it. Uh, and the developer mode is enabled. So if you need to test to make sure something runs on Windows, or if you need to build a native Windows piece of code for whatever reason, you don't have to go and install everything from scratch. You can just grab one of these. They're time limited. I think they're limited to a couple weeks or months or something like that. Um, and you can fire them right up. They've got you know current browsers on them and you can do what you need to do with them and they're free. That's pretty cool. Are they time limited each time you use them or just like you can use it once and then it expires and that's it? I think it's for a period of time, like weeks or something where the whole VM expires. Yeah. Um, and I think they warn you about it if I remember correctly, like in the little status bar somewhere. Um, so they also have, if you're stuck with IE 11, <laughs> uh, or like the older version of edge that wasn't Chrome based, you can also get free VMs for just testing those. And these are literally download links. When I clicked on the one for, for, uh, virtual box, I got a download of the, of the whole VM is 18 gig file ready to go. I remember so. at one point, this was years ago now, a project we were working. I, I had three different versions of windows running in virtual box. Mm -hmm. um, for testing purposes, because I had to test against all those versions. It was fun. Yep, yep, yep. And also, uh, Visual, Self is Visual Studio itself, I didn't know this, is what he's saying, is free for Windows and Mac, so you may not need the VMs. I wasn't aware that they made that free, um, Visual Studio. Oh, because they're probably talking about Visual Studio Community, <laughs> which is not Visual Studio Code, by the way. But it would be interesting to see, because I've never really got into, like, uh, Mono, which is .NET open source cross-platform. But uh, that that's like what this thing builds, you know, C-sharp and things like that on the Mono platform. So interesting to see. I didn't realize that was free now. It's very cool. I may be the last person to find that out. <laughs> hey, should we talk about NASA? Yes. Oh, my God. Wow. What a cool week, right? It's I, I, I'm still kind of in disbelief, to be honest. Mind blown. So get this. I'm gonna. I don't know how the frame rate is. You, do you hear any audio? I don't hear audio. You don't need it. But I was just curious if we did. But I'm just gonna let this play as we talk. So they have the Perseverance rover. This is amazing. They have the Perseverance rover um, teams talk that we saw when we were watching it. Turns out they were recording on the rover, camera up above to the parachute. This is crazy, right? We're watching something parachuting and landing on another planet like my i don't know this, i now that's the heat no, shield no going words, away no words to describe it i'm like i want some background cheesy 70s 60s star trek music but or Legetti's opera like they had in 2001 yeah. space Odyssey. So, uh, that's the heat shield by the way going away oh, oh, oh to that point I, it's like we haven't even stepped foot on mars yet and human beings no. are already accumulating 
trash on Mars. There's a heat shield. There's a descent stage that kind of flow, flew off and, and goes away somewhere else to break off. And so, yeah, yeah we're going to keep accumulating more and more trash. It's typical human being nature to, like, just leave crap everywhere. So, well, didn't we have a crashed lander for, for Mars at one point, too? I think we did. I can't remember. One of the probes didn't work. Because, oh, that was the one where it was metric versus uh, uh, imperial unit conversion problem. Remember that about two decades yeah. ago? Yeah. So this is a real time. It's only a three-minute video. They are now probably four or five kilometers from the surface. Um, and they're getting ready as they get closer to pop the the top off of the uh, the system and bring the, the jets up. So that like what it is, is it's just, they're suspending the rover. The, the uh, parachute is holding the whole package right now. But then they're going to throw the parachute away and they're going to break free the top of it. And that has retro rockets on it to slow the descent. And then it peels off away as the rover lands and crashes somewhere else. It's NASA, if you're listening to this live stream or, or, the, or the recording later on, Please turn this into a VR capable video. Oh, next 3D IMAX movie. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now watch, we're almost there now, but uh, the top popped off. Um, so now they're like getting ready to to find a place to land. You're going to start seeing the sand kick up. We're going to back a couple seconds here. So cool. I believe you're going to see another split screen where you see the actual uh, final landing craft. You'll see the the tether from the landing craft uh, connecting to the rover in about three seconds here. Can you imagine, like, this was 11 minutes later yeah. they had to find out. There it is. Wow. Watch this. This is the coolest. And there it is. That's the, that's the package now. So the top is what's got the retro rocket landing stuff going, right? That's yeah. the little hovering thing above it. And it's looking down on the rover. And the rover's looking up on that, and it lands, and they go ballistic crazy. Now look at, see how it flies out of the way. Did so that, almost, the that, that almost looked fake right there, but it's me. I mean, I just can't. Great? All I want to do is say say words that'll get bleeped out, so I won't say anything. But I love this team. This team is really great too. Like I watched this live last week uh, while I was doing other things, and I just I just love the team. They're so you know, committed and engaged. It's nice to see that. And and such a great, like, technology that they're using. So beyond that, that's really cool. Um, you had all this was happening, right? All the work behind this, all been going on all these years, right? And we had COVID and all these other restrictions. Yeah. And they were working under all of these um, challenges. It's just fantastic. I can't believe it. Did you hear the interviews for that? Because they were talking to them no, about that. No, I didn't that. actually. It's on. If you go to the feed, there's there's like a two or three hour feed they did of the entire event, okay. which if you're a space nerd, you'd love, um, but you can't digest it all at once. But uh, they had interviews with like the team leaders that had to get the news to them. Like, look, COVID is hitting you off to work from home. I know this is difficult because we all work together in a team environment. So we have to figure out how to work remotely and all this. Wow. Um, now, yeah, now here's something cool. Linux. The Perseverance Mars rover runs Linux. Yeah. So this is the first Linux uh, service or a Linux operating system on Mars. Um, probably not the first Linux system that NASA has used, but it's an open source victory for them because they're now using uh, that on the Perseverance rover. Um, and so it's all open, not all open source, probably mostly open source. Um, let's see here. This is an article at techradar.com by, to give everyone credit here, 
met, met, met Mayanak Sharma four days ago. Uh, and then, so let's see here. Um, they've been doing a lot of open source uh, over the past 10 plus years. Um, and they actually have over 500 open source projects. So you can go to code.nasa.gov and you can see the projects that are out there. Um, I guess we have to search them. So let's see, uh, Rove Rover. Oh, I guess I have to scroll. There we go. These are all open source projects that uh, NASA is working on. And like I said, there are 500 of them out there. So it'd be interesting to look at that at some point. Um, and then they show you how you can publish on NASA. So if you have open source software you want to place on GitHub, uh, maybe this is for a NASA. Yeah, so this is for NASA people who want to publish open source libraries on their GitHub account. Nice. So that could be very cool. So there is a github.com slash NASA, which we've got to check out. That should be interesting. Yeah, just you, like you, earlier, you're talking about Linux being 30 years old. So with you know, 30, 30 Linux get, gets created and 30 years later, it's on Mars. How cool is that, right? Amazing. Wow. So anyway, I thought that was a really cool thing to bring up. 10 software engineering laws everyone loves to ignore. And this is going to be me, I'm sure. Let's see. So I, I find this. One second, let me get or maybe not. Maybe I'll be like, yeah, for half of them. Second here, let's open the link. Mm -hmm. Q hold music. Net, yeah. Doo, 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 doo. So this is netmeister.org is the website, um, and the website's called Signs of Triviality. <laughs> so I, I most of these I, I find true and funny. So I'm just gonna like quickly go over a couple of them. Sure. So a lot of you may be familiar familiar with Conway's law. It essentially amounts to any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy <laughs> of the organization's communication structure. So basically what it means is your software tends to get architected the or, or rather the, the architecture, the reflection of how the teams are organized and, and how they communicate with each other. So that can either make things very convoluted or make things very simple. So like instead of your software being architected based off its intended use and, and features, it gets architected in a way that reflects how the people communicate with each other. So you have to be really careful with how you form teams, how teams communicate, how much overhead you have, how many paths of communication you add, because that kind of goes up exponentially as you add more people to a team. Um, so that's that. So usually, you know, we all know these things and they're fun to talk about and we can write them down, but we tend to make, the, the point is that we tend to make these mistakes anyway. The reality right. is you're trying to get stuff done and human beings are human and messy and noisy, so that always comes into the picture. Um, Brooks Law, adding manpower to a late software project makes it later. <laughs> so true. So again, the idea being, is really related to Conway's Law and, and communication again, is that the more people you add, the more communication overhead there is, um, more coordination that has to occur, the more ramp up that has to occur. So it doesn't, adding people to a project doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get more work done or get it done faster. And in many cases, it can make it actually take longer and more challenging and the software more brittle um, as per Conway's law. So I, I find interesting that those are the first two laws mentioned here. Um, this one I really like. It's just hilarious. Uh, Zawinski's law. I haven't heard of this one. Um, every program attempts to expand until it includes a web server. <laughs> this program, which cannot so expand, are replaced by ones which can. And then um, the, the author of this blog post, uh, or I should say, science of 
Triviality, netmeister.org, I think his name is Jay Shoma, uh, says for web services, it's until it requires a user account and collects all users' data. For physical devices, it's until it includes an insecure Wi-Fi <laughs> access point with an email password you can't change. And a web service. <laughs> I think he's actually right. <laughs> I think he's probably correct. Yeah. Oh, oh that's really funny. Uh, I'll just quickly go over a couple. So, work sure, sure. Parkinson's law work expands just to fill the time available for its completion. You know, that is so true. It really is. It does. Yeah. Or sometimes compresses, I find. Yeah. So sometimes when there's a deadline, you just somehow make that deadline like, we did it. And you realize we've done this every other time. Like, how do we? And you just, you do. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why it's much better to think in terms of like, user stories, features, milestones, like what, what is of value and, and figure out must-haves versus nice-haves instead of just looking at a schedule and trying to carve off stuff. Like yeah. you end up hitting this law or, or you know, it, you, you hit this law and you end up doing it that way if you if you think of time first and features afterwards. Um, yep. yep. And then Pareto's, everyone knows, you know, kind of the 80-20 rule, right? When you're 80% done, you think you only have 20% left. Um, oh man, so you true. Around where twenty percent require eighty percent of the, your time. Anyway, there's a couple other laws in here. Um, I, I these oh, are, Stu, number six, number six, absolutely. Um, oh, <laughs> no, well, how many crud apps have we built? In the Sorry, say that again. I was talking to read. Oh, Sturgeon's revelation: ninety percent of everything is crud. Create, read, update, delete front ends. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it says yes. That includes your products. Your products. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just find. These are these are kind of things that I like like looking at every couple times a year just to keep myself um, grounded because it happens on every project. Um, so yeah, they're good to uh good to keep be mindful of. Good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, sorry, I have to say the last one too. So this is Go like ahead. congressional bill, the LGTM, which stands for you know looks good to me, which is a common response in in pull requests. Um, so if you want to quickly ship a ten line code change, hide it in a fifteen hundred line pull request. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. Do you know what I thought LGTM meant? Let's get this moving. I get you could interpret it that way too. Actually, that I actually thought it was that. Yeah, but it, yeah, it looks good to me. It's probably the, the, the slightly more optimistic version of "Let's get this moving." <laughs> yeah, sure, just push it. it. Sounds like the manager version of it. Like, let's get this moving. Let's get this moving. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. That's a good one. All right. So we'll have that in the in the notes. Okay. Composing um, functions, Java Joy. So I, I find functional programming and, and functional composition, higher order functions, um, very powerful and a nice way to express certain types of logic um, and create new logic. And I did that for a number of years with Scala, um, where it's, yeah. it's natural to the language, very easy to do. Um, Java, this article specifically on DZone by uh, Hubert Klein Ikink, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, is about Java 15 and uh, functional composition. So Java Util Function Function interface has been around for a while, and you can essentially use it to create all sorts of function interfaces that take a certain number of parameters in and output a par uh, parameter, and you can use you know generic generics to essentially define that the input output of the function, and then you can actually implement that as um, kind of anonymous uh, closures. Mm -hmm. So the one the syntax is getting lighter and lighter for creating these. Uh, anonymous closures. And there's a whole bunch of ways to create um, multiple functions now and combine them. Things like and then, meaning like if you have one function and then you want to take the results of that and then do something, or sorry, if you have something coming in 
And mm-hmm. you just want to say like, do this and then do this and then do this. You can chain a bunch of functions together by and then to do that. Um, compose just says like, take, take the input into one function. And then the output of that is the input into the next function. So it's mm-hmm. a way of composing things. But, you know, looking at this syntax, basically, if you look at lines 12 and 13, you see that these closures are um, pretty lightweight. You know, they have the, the, the interface type, then the name, and then the defin- the function definition. Um, you know, the, the, there's no- It looks you, like an arrow function in JavaScript. Exactly. If you notice, there's no type parameter um, for, the, for the input parameter X. Right. So it's inferring that based off of the interface in unary operator. So like a template, yeah. Right, so that helps a little bit. And then you see later it's doing things like F and then G and then apply as, in, so you can up basically um, apply your, your uh, argument as an integer and pass it in. Oh, I see. Yeah, cool. And then same with this compose where it does F of G, not F and then G. And then um, there's more examples below. But anyway, it's you know just becoming easier and easier to do functional programming in Java and becoming lighter weight. Um, so, you know. I look forward to these things, and, and I think Java 15 is going to be the next LTS version, if I'm not wrong. Oh, so good. I'm excited to see these changes. That's just good stuff. I like this a lot. Nice. All right. And again, we'll have that in the, the show notes. All right. I think that's everything for the week. Let me just double check. I think so. Oh, one quick note. Uh we had an article from Sujan on the the uh, rover here, and I'll make sure that this is in the, in the notes too. It's the first one that he has in his list, uh, Becca. Uh, that one has a good kind of recap of it. Also, NASA recorded the sounds. They have a microphone on board. Uh, and so there's a microphone on there, and they have the, the, the sounds from Mars that they've actually released. So they can listen to the Mars uh, surface anytime they want to. There's a bit of a breeze. You can hear it kind of shuddering the mic. You also hear all the whining and clicking sounds of the rover itself. Uh, and then they were able to kind of zero out that uh, whining and clicking noise as well. Yeah, it's amazing. This is the first audio sample from Mars from another planet. So yeah. it's, it's uh, I think that's true, yeah. So Yeah, well, you can't do it from the moon because the moon doesn't really have an atmosphere. So yeah. Again, another mind-blowing thing that the fact that all this, it got there, it made it intact, all the instrumentation's intact as far as they know so far, right? They'll learn as they go along, but, and it's sending images, video, um, audio. It's just, wow. The number, like the million number of things that have to go right. Yeah. Happen. It's mind blowing. It really is. So everyone, it, as a human, you should watch that footage just to see like what we're capable of as a, as a species right now. It's just amazing. All right. Well, that's it for us for this week. So uh, again, we'll be back next week. Uh, you can get all the archives from the show. If you go to uh, youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you can go to our uh, playlist and you can look there. Uh, you can also go to chariotsolutions.com slash techcast. And that's where our podcast is based as well. Uh, so you can see the videos there. And remember to sign up for ETE 2021 before the tickets go out. It's going to be popular. Uh, and we have those other two events, uh, the Linux 30 and the, the event we have uh, with Tracy wilson Rothson, which is the uh, Executive Town Hall Series Leadership Strategies to Drive Innovation, Growth, and Resiliency. Um, if you want to comment, please uh, email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com or send a tweet to at techcast. We'd love to hear from you. That's it. So for the week, I'm Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. Have a great week.
Take care, guys.